to the preaching and teaching ministry of Marion Oaks Assembly of God in Ocala, Florida. We invite you to open your Bible as we join Pastor Tim McIntyre for today's message for Bible study. Today we're going to pick back up with the series we began about a year ago. And it's the life of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke. Um, we've been working our way through Luke for the last year, taking a break during holidays and special events and missions convention. And recently we did a whole series on reaching our world for Jesus. And we're going to kick back in today, take a break next week when we have a special guest and back into it. And we're in Luke chapter 7. And so this series is called The Life of Jesus. That's what we're studying, The Life of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke. Let me start with a question, as I often do. Have you ever been amazed? Uh, we could throw all kinds of uh, crazy thoughts in there, like, you know, you're, if your teenager ever gets up before 10 o'clock on Saturday morning, you're amazed. I mean, there's all kinds of things we could fit in there. But I mean, literally amazed. What, what does it mean to be amazed? I think we all have an understanding, but to put it in words, it's easier just to look at other words that are used to describe being amazed. The dictionary says that to be amazed means to be greatly surprised, astonished, astounded, filled with wonder. And I'm sure all of us have experienced various things that have filled us with amazement. It's like, oh man, I can't believe that. Uh, one of the things that comes to my mind really quickly is if you've ever had the opportunity to see a magician do a magic show. You know, I mean, these... Um, I almost said these guys, but they can be ladies. You know, they do things. It's like, how'd they do that? That should be impossible. You know, cutting a lady in half or making things disappear or, you know, having an elephant appear on stage under a curtain. You know, all kinds of crazy stuff. It amazes us. But there's a lot of things that can amaze us. I'll be honest with you. I think, uh, you know, you see someone who has tremendous talent in a certain area, whether it's a a musician or an athlete and you see them perform at the top of their ability, and it's like, oh my goodness, that is just plain amazing. It's amazing. But we are studying the life of Jesus. And when you read through the Gospels, the four stories of Jesus' life, you find that people were amazed with Jesus all the time. And that makes sense. I mean, we have this guy that shows up, and he's doing miracles. I mean, he's doing the impossible. That would amaze anybody. If we were there that day, a day when he healed someone, and you could actually see it happen, and it's like, that is amazing. The miracles, the the calming of storms, the feeding of great crowds with just a little boy's lunch, the deliverance of people who have been bound by demonic powers and demonic forces... But Scripture also says that people were amazed at him because of his wisdom and because of his knowledge and because of his teaching ability and the fact that he taught with such authority. Jesus amazed people all the time. And to be honest with you, Jesus is still amazing. Can you say amen? Jesus is amazing. What he's done in our lives, what he, what, what he accomplished for us on the cross, it's just Plain amazing. That's why that song, you probably maybe heard it a little bit. Amazing grace. Maybe you heard of that. You know, it is just amazing God's grace for us. But today I want to kind of flip that a little bit. We all know what it's like to be amazed just in general. We, we understand people being amazed with Jesus, but what would it take to amaze Jesus? I mean, is that even possible? 
Is it possible for Jesus to find himself in a situation like, oh my goodness, I'm just amazed, I'm, I'm astonished, I'm shocked, I'm surprised. You might say, no, there's no way he could be amazed. He's God, you know, I mean, oh, he's man, but he was God. Come in. But you know what? The Bible tells of two specific situations when Jesus was actually amazed. And we're going to look at one of them today, and I'll tell you about the second one of them before we get to the end. And so today we're going to talk about a man that amazed Jesus. The title of my message is The Man Who Amazed Jesus. And we find his story in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. So let's look at that right now. Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. Just some little background in case you haven't been with us, but even if you have, it's been about a month and a half since we looked at that. Jesus in Luke chapter 6 had done a number of things, called his disciples, and then he had a teaching time um, and did a lot of teaching. And he got all done with that teaching, and that's where we pick up the story today in verse 1 of chapter 7. After Jesus had finished all his sayings, talking about teachings, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Capernaum is a decent-sized town on the Sea of Galilee. This is not where Jesus was born or raised, but this is his headquarters for ministry in the northern part of Israel. So he did all his teaching, and he came off of that place where he was teaching his pretty close to Capernaum. Verse 2. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick, and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he's the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this. And he does that. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Some translations say he was amazed. Other translations say he was astonished. One translation says he was surprised. When Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel, God's people, have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. It's interesting, in this story, it's all about the centurion, and he never shows up. I mean, he's not on the scene, you know? It's just talking about what he did and said and sending messages to Jesus, and he never shows up. But it's all about the centurion, and this man, the centurion, amazed Jesus because of his faith. So who was this man? Well, it's quite obvious in the passage because it says it several times. He's a centurion. What is a centurion? Well, a centurion is not a Jewish person. You know, Jesus came to God's people, the Jewish people, Israel. And he spent most of his ministry primarily focusing on God's people to get things started, to get things going. But yet there are many times we find in Scripture, in the Gospels, when Jesus is reaching out to people who are not of the Jewish faith, But the centurion is not a Jew. He's a Roman. A centurion actually is a Roman military official. 
you've heard the word century, right? And what is a century? It's a hundred years. And that root of century, that sent whatever, centennial, you know, got all those things, a hundred years. Um, century has that root of a hundred. And a centurion was a Roman military official who had authority over, um, it was supposed to be a hundred people, but sometimes you didn't have the full century. So it could be 80, it could be 90, whatever, but has authority over a hundred people. They say the Roman army was built on the strength of their centurions. There were those who were in authority higher to them all the way up to the emperor, but they were at the most basic level to really control how things happened and what happened and how orders were carried out. And so the Roman Empire depended very, very much on their centurions, and because of that, they paid them very well. In this society, a centurion would have been relatively wealthy. But centurions, like military people today, had to serve often far from home. We don't know where exactly this man was from. He was a Roman, but that doesn't mean he was from Rome. He could have been from anywhere in the Roman Empire. He wasn't a Jew because the Jewish people did not serve in the Roman army. But he was from somewhere. And he had been brought into Capernaum where there was a Roman outpost And he was in charge. And he had all these men underneath him. He knew what it was like to have authority over him going all the way to the empire, uh, emperor. But he also knew what it meant to have authority over these hundred or so men underneath him. That's what he's talking about when he talks about Jesus. He said, I know about authority. If I tell one of my men to do something, they do it. I mean, in the Roman Empire, in the Roman army, if you didn't do what you were told, you're dead. So I tell them to go, they go. I tell them to come, they come. I tell them to do it, they do it. I know what authority is all about. So he's a centurion stationed in Capernaum. I want to spend a little time today talking about this centurion's character. Now, we talked about that this centurion amazed Jesus, and it's very clear from the text that what it was about the centurion that amazed Jesus was his faith. And we certainly want to focus on his faith, and we will do that as we get closer to the end of the sermon, because that's very, very important. So you might say, well, if the, if the thing that amazed Jesus is his faith, why do we want to focus on his character? Well, two reasons. Number one, he's got a tremendous character that is wonderful examples for all of us. <laughs> the centurion's character would be a great example for people that aren't even believers in Jesus. But it's a phenomenal example for those of us that are believers in Jesus. The things that were true of this man should be true of us as followers of Jesus Christ. And there are significant things. And so I want to be sure that we don't just pass this story by talking about his faith and miss all the other good stuff that we can glean from this. Okay? So I want to encourage you to look encourage you as we look at his character to kind of look at your own life and say, how does my character, you know, kind of compare to his character, you know, these character traits and stuff. But the other thing that I have found in my life anyway is that whatever character traits you have, they influence each other, don't they? You know, if you're growing in love, that's a character trait, you're probably going to be growing in patience and goodness, kindness, you know, other character traits. All right. And if you're growing in another character trait, it's probably influencing the other character traits. You know, you don't very often find somebody say he's got a phenomenal character, but he really hates people. No, because as good as you might be, it's going to influence how you treat other people or he really, really loves, loves, loves people. But he's not very patient and he gets angry. It's like, no, they're, they're all tied together, aren't they? And so I would say that there is a degree to which his entire character 
has helped to mold and shape him as a man, and that has influenced his faith. So I would say that there's at least a, a bit of a tie to the other character traits we're going to see in his life to his faith. So let's jump in and take a look at his character. And the first character trait we see here is that he valued people. He valued people, showing kindness, love, and respect. I was working on my sermon outline, I was trying to say, how do I make this point? He was kind. Well, he was kind, but it also says that he loved, he, he, was, he had love, but it's obvious he has respect. And I thought, you know, a great way to just summarize it is that he valued people. He valued people. And it caused him to treat them with kindness, to treat them with love, to treat them with respect. Can I tell you that a centurion was not required to do this? A centurion was a military leader, and I'm sure that he was a strong military leader, and even though he probably, because he did for other people, had care and concern for his men, and not just because he wanted them to survive the battle, so he still had men to, 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 um, uh, under his control, but it's just part of who he is. But I'm sure he was still a very strong leader. He expected what was supposed to be done. But he valued people. And we see it in this story in a number of places. First of all, the whole point of the story is this thing even happened was because he valued his servant. He valued his servant. We see this in verse 2, where it says, Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. If we didn't know better, we'd say, well, of course he's valued by him. Here he's got a man that works for him, and this man can't do any work. And if he's really dependent on this servant, he needs this servant to get better so he can do his work. And, and that certainly would be true. That certainly would be a reason why this servant would be valuable to the centurion. But it's more than that. The word that is used there in the original language is that he valued him in such a way like a family member, like a child, that he was caring for him. You know, in the Roman Empire, servants, these type of servants were basically slaves, and they were considered property. Most people, if they had a servant that got so sick that they couldn't work anymore, and, um, you know, there was nothing that could be done about that, they would either, if they were nice, kick them out of the home, and they were on their own, or they'd put them to death. Because they were property. They weren't valuable anymore. They weren't, they weren't, they weren't helpful anymore. They weren't, um, uh, productive anymore. But that's not the attitude that the centurion had to one of his servants. Now, I'm not saying that that was the right attitude. Obviously, it's not the right attitude, but that's the culture they were in. The centurion bucked his culture. He really cared about people. He really valued people, even his servant, whom most other Romans would just say, he's sick, get rid of him. Unless he's going to get better soon, get rid of him. Kill him if you have to. Don't let him be a train on the household. But he valued this servant. He went to a lot of effort to care for him. And the story seems to indicate that he's been caring for him for a while. During the whole time he's been sick and he's been getting worse and worse and worse. And now he's close to death. But he heard about Jesus. Jesus had already done a number of miracles, a large number of miracles in Capernaum. And the centurion had heard about that. And he says, here's an opportunity. And so he calls some of his friends, these Jewish elders. He says, hey, would you go talk to Jesus? Uh, You know, would you go ask him if he would heal my servant? So he makes this extra effort to try to get healing for this servant that he values. 
the servant that he values. We see also that he values people in showing it to, quote, his enemies, the Jewish people. So the Jewish people were his enemies? Yes and no. The Jewish people hated the Romans. The Romans were the occupying force. They were no longer an independent nation and hadn't been for a long time. The Roman Empire had taken over not only Israel, but all the nations all across that part of the world, including Israel. And, 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 and just like anybody would, the Jewish people were like, no, we serve God. We're God's people. We should be independent. We should have our own king like good old King David or Solomon or one of the great kings of the past. They looked for that. They longed for that. That's one of the reasons they were longing for the Messiah, the one that God said would come and make everything right and reestablish their nation and sit upon the throne and make everything that was wrong right again. And the Jews hated the Romans, and they especially hated the occupying force. You know, we've never had to face anything like that in our nation, but if you could imagine some other nation conquering the United States of America and sending their army in and having outposts of military, that not the United States military, but to keep an eye on things and to, uh, to hold down uprisings and to reinforce laws that we don't agree with and, and to make sure we pay plenty of taxes and all. This is all the stuff that the Jewish people, they hated the Jews. And most of the Romans, uh, I mean, the Jews hated the Romans and most of the Romans hated the Jews. If you go back and study Roman history, totally outside the Bible, you find that if you were appointed by the people who were in charge in Rome to go rule in Israel, that was like, oh my, what did I do wrong? Why did you send me there? Pontius Pilate, we read about him in Scripture, he did not want to be there. He hated being there. He was sent there because he was being disciplined. The only rulers we read in Scripture that are glad to be there are like King Herod because he's part Jew and part not. So he's like, hey, I'm part Jew, but I'm in a position of authority. But those that were sent in from outside say, I don't want to go to that place. That's like the armpit of the world. That's not in the Bible, but that's kind of the way they looked at it. You didn't want to be stationed there in the military either. It's like, whoa, way out there it is. No, they hated each other. But yet, look at this. These Jewish people, he calls them to send them to Jesus, and they are eager to go. These Jewish leaders, they're saying, Jesus, he's asking if you could heal his servant. And I just want to tell you, he is worthy to have this done. What was it that changed the Jewish people's perception of this particular Roman? Well, it's clear in the passage here. It says that this Roman valued them. And that he did things for them. It says, they, they, they told you, he loves us. He actually loves us. And he built our synagogue. The synagogue for the Jewish people was sort of like church for us. It was the place where they would gather to worship. But it was even much more than that. That was the center of their social life. Everything revolved around the synagogue. That's where the school was. That's where they went to fellowship. That's where they would have their weddings. That's where they'd have their funerals. That's where they would go to look at God's word and have it explained. And that's where they would go to worship. The synagogue was everything to the Jewish people. And this Roman centurion at some point, for some reason, stepped in and built their synagogue for them. He endeared himself to the Jewish people. Totally and completely unusual. But he valued people. He valued the people that were even supposed to be his enemies. Because of that, they valued him back. We see also that he valued Jesus. 
It's kind of implied, but the way that he is dealing with Jesus through the intermediaries, he is dealing with Jesus with great respect. He's dealing with him with reverence. He, he He's saying, listen, you know, I would like for you to do this. Would you please consider this? He, he isn't as a, uh, a military authority saying, Jesus, show up here, see what you can do. I mean, he is treating him with respect. And another thing that um, may be here in this passage is that as Jesus begins to come toward his house, the centurion sends more friends to say, no, no, don't come to the house. Don't come to the house. I'm not worthy. I find it very interesting. The Jewish leaders say, he is worthy, but he's saying, I'm not worthy. But another reason he might be saying that is he's familiar with Jewish culture. And in Jewish culture, because of the religious laws and ceremonial purity and that kind of stuff, you were never, ever, ever to enter a Gentile's house. And so it could actually be a sign of respect for him saying, Jesus, you know, just send the word. And I I believe you can do it from a distance, you know. Uh, Don't come to my house because I know that in the eyes of other people that would lower your respect or their respect of you. It would, it would make them think of you as being unclean according to their law, and I don't want to put you through that. So we see the centurion valuing Jesus. He valued, and if he valued his servant, if he valued his, his enemies, if he valued Jesus, he probably just had that as a character trait in his life. He valued people. It's interesting, I think, one of the reasons why Luke includes this story in here is because, as we've talked about a couple of times in this series, what is it that Luke is trying to communicate? He's trying to tell the story of Jesus' life, but what are the main themes? And and there's a number of main themes that are in there, that Jesus is man, but he's also God, uh, and that God sent him, that he had a plan and purpose, he came to seek and save the lost you know, but he's also trying to emphasize the role of the Holy Spirit. We've seen that over and over again, the importance of prayer, because this gospel more than any other talks about Jesus praying and teaching on prayer. But another thing that Luke is trying to get across in this gospel, and he's also the guy that wrote the book of Acts, but a major theme that he's trying to get across is that God sent Jesus. Jesus being God came for everybody, not just the Jewish people, but even the Gentiles the horribly wicked, idolatrous pagans. And so all through, Luke looks for opportunities and takes advantage of stories that show how Jesus and God, especially in the book of Acts, reached out to those who are not of the Jewish race and brought them in to the kingdom of God. And how Jews and Gentiles can get along People who come from totally different backgrounds, totally different belief systems, totally different value systems can get along when God gets involved. And so that's another purpose for this story. And before we move on to the next character trait, we need to pause and ask, do we value others? And every single one of us, I'm sure, could say, yes, I do. And we've got a whole list of the others that we value. Hopefully that list includes your spouse if you're married. If you're not married, it says it definitely includes my spouse. I'd like to find out who they are. All right? Hopefully that list of the people you value includes your children and your parents, your grandchildren, your grandparents, your family, right? Obviously, the list of those that we value would include our friends. Hopefully, it can include our coworkers, because if you don't value your coworkers or you don't feel valued at work, you work in a place that makes it very difficult, don't you? But the question would be, who is not on our list of who we value? 
Do we, like the centurion, value those that we see below ourselves? No, we don't even want to talk about that because we know we're not supposed to see people below ourselves. No, I'm a Christian. I don't see anybody below myself. And we know that's the way it should be, right? But isn't there something inside of us because we're human, we're fallen, we've got that sinful flesh, that there are times anyway when we look at somebody else and we don't see them at quite the same level we would see ourselves. Whatever is a group of people, like, say, the homeless, or someone from a different ethnicity, someone who doesn't have the education we do, Someone from a different social status, the very poor or the very rich, how they're so arrogant and so hard. Who is it that you struggle to value? That'd be something God would speak to us about today. Do we value those that we would look at as our enemies? Maybe we don't think of them as enemies because as believers, we're trying real hard not to have enemies. Maybe we don't. But are there those people who might would consider you an enemy or people that are antagonistic to you for whatever reason? And do you find yourself struggling to treat them with value, with kindness, with love and respect? Can I tell you that this is such an important character trait? like, ah, I know that's important, but look at the mess Look at the mess there is in the world and the mess that there is in our country and a lot of it can be traced back to people do not value each other. The war between Russia and Ukraine. Valuing each other. I'm not an expert on that at all. I follow it a little bit, but not much. I pray about it all the time. I don't know who's right. I don't know who's wrong. All that, you know, whatever. But there's obviously a problem with people valuing each other. The problems that we have in our own nation that flare up and get worse from time to time and then sit down, so much problem where one race does not value and respect another race. Or one social class does not value or respect another. And it goes both ways. That's not the way it should be in general. But it's certainly not the way it should be in the body of Christ. We need to value each other. Even within a local body of believers, if there's somebody we have a hard time getting along with, somebody that rubs us the wrong way, somebody that's offended us, that's a whole other topic. We still need to value each other. Like we talked about in communion, we need to work on our relationships with one another, love one another, be there for one another, value one another, treat one another with kindness and respect and love. So the centurion valued people. A second thing we see about him is that he respected God. Now that's an assumption. It does not say this centurion loved God, respected God, whatever. But I think it's a pretty good assumption. Why would this centurion take a good bit of his hard-earned money and use it to build a synagogue for people he's supposed to hate? Unless he values not only those people, but what they stand for and their spiritual condition and their religion. We find that in the Roman Empire, true, the Romans pretty much hated the Jews, but there were Romans that were sick and tired of their own spiritual background, which is worshiping this God and that God and that goddess. And these gods and goddesses were so fickle and you couldn't count on them and blah, 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 blah. And everything was so immoral and all that kind of stuff that there were a number of Roman people that would say, this Jewish God sounds very attractive. It's only one God. 
And he's a God of righteousness and justice. He stands for what's right, and you can count on him. At least that's what they teach. And so there were a number of Romans that would become what they would call God-fearers. And if they were willing to take certain steps, they could actually become proselytes and become a part of the Jewish race. A lot of guys didn't want to do that because that meant you had to be circumcised, but whole other issue. Okay? So they would just be a God-fearer. All right? So it seems to indicate that the centurion had a respect for the Jewish God. And so he was probably a God-fearer. So he respected God. I would say that. And it's interesting because centurions show up in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, and all the centurions are good guys. Again, it's part of Luke's uh, point of trying to show, you know what? Jews and Gentiles can get along together. Even those that are in authority in the Roman Empire can recognize who Jesus is and have a relationship with him. You know, you think about the centurion that was at the cross and Jesus died and the centurion's there and says, surely this man was innocent. He must have been the son of God. You know, we think of the centurion that's in Acts chapter 10, who we know is a God-fearer and he loves God. It tells specifically that he loves, his name's Cornelius. He loves God. He prays, he fasts, he does good deeds. He helps the Jewish people. And God specifically sent an angel to him saying, go send for Peter because Peter's got some good news for you. And Peter came, told him about Jesus, he became a believer. So we see that this centurion, we don't even know his name, he respected God. The third thing we've already mentioned, he was generous. He was generous. He had a decent amount of wealth. He certainly wasn't as wealthy as the emperor. And there were a whole lot more wealthy people back in Rome that had a lot more than he did. But among the people he was with there in Israel, he was a wealthy person. And he could have just lavished it all on his own personal needs and wants and desires and lifestyle. But he was generous. And again, generous not just to people that he would normally or naturally think was worthy of it, but the people that were supposed to be his enemies. He was generous. You know, earlier it said that the Jewish leaders said that this man, he's worthy, Jesus, of you coming and healing us because he loves us. Can I tell you that this man loved not just in word, but in deed? You've heard that before, right? We can claim that we love people, but where is the proof in the pudding, as the old saying says? It's what we do about it. It's what we do about it. He demonstrated his love. Not only, the val- not only in the value that he gave to people and he expressed it to them, but by in his generosity. The fourth thing we see is that he was humble. He was humble. He was a man in a position of authority. He could boss people around. He could use his authority and power to do any number of things for the Jewish people that they could either really like or not like or whatever, but we see that he is a humble man. After the appeal is made and Jesus begins to come toward his house and he sends others to say, Jesus, 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 don't, don't come to my house. And again, I said there, there may be a cultural thing there. He doesn't embarrass Jesus, put him in a difficult position, make other Jewish people think he's unclean. He wants to sh- save him and all that. But, but there's also this aspect of Jesus, from what I've heard about you and everything, I'm not worthy to have you come into my house. There's that humility that is there. This is not natural for anybody. Humility is natural for none of us. I read one commentary when I was studying this last week. It says, we are born proud, aren't we? We are. Of the things that we battle with, pride is one of the number one things. And to be honest with you, pride is behind a lot of the other problems that we have. Someone has once said, and I can see it, that pride is at the root of all sins. 
Adam and Eve, right? Why did they eat from the fruit of the tree? Pride. I can be something apart from God. I can know better than God knows. Pride. Just about any and every sin you can think of, pride is a part of it. And the opposite, humility is so important. We need humility to come to God. We need humility to recognize that we need God and we need His forgiveness and we need a Savior and we need what Jesus offers. We don't like to say we need, we need, we need because we don't want to need. We want to be self-sufficient and that's a good thing in and of itself. But humility says we need to recognize who God is and the fact that we need what only, we need what only He can offer. Jesus taught about it a lot, and it's all through Paul's writings and Peter's writings about how when we're caught up in pride, we will be humbled. But when we humble ourselves, we'll be exalted. I've got one of the, the, one of the scriptures there in the notes, Luke 18, 14. Jesus says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, that can happen in this life. It may not happen till eternity, but it will happen. It will happen. And again, it can cause us to pause and say, how humble are we? How humble are we? Do we recognize our need for a Savior? Do we recognize our need for God and His work in our life? Do we recognize that we're sinners? Or are we always throwing up excuses and reasons why I do that and I know that God's Word says I shouldn't, but I'm the exception or here's the reason why it's okay and it doesn't apply to me. Are we, are we humble? But humility is one of those really weird things, you know, because unless you believe and confess that you're not humble, then you're not humble. And what I mean by that is if you say, you know, I got this humility thing down. I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> what does that say? I'm pretty proud of my humility, right? I mean, <laughs> heard a story. I don't know if it's a true story. I heard a story about a church that gave their pastor a special little trophy-like thing because they thought he was the most humble no, it was, it was a pin that they thought that, that he was the most humble pastor they'd ever come across. And they gave him this little pin, but then they had to take it away because he kept wearing it. Because he's so proud of it. And it just shows you the uniqueness of this whole thing of humility, okay? But he was humble. He was humble. It takes humility to really serve God. Because if we're going to truly serve God, we're going to be in it not for ourselves and what we can get from it, but what we can do for God, what we can do for His kingdom, and what we can do for other people. And it may put us in difficult situations, costly situations, in situations we really would prefer not to be in. So humility is so important. The fifth and last one is the one that the whole story is about. He was a man of great faith. He was a man of great faith. As Jesus is on his way, he sends friends. He says, Jesus, don't come. We talked about the various reasons why I may have said that. Humility, cultural stuff. But he says, just say the word and my servant will be healed. Jesus has healed a lot of people. Jesus has delivered a lot of people. Jesus has done a lot of miracles, but this is the first time. It may be the only time. I should have looked that up. One of you guys can look that up and let me know. It may be the only time where Jesus did a miracle long distance. Didn't even have to be there. Shows the faith of this centurion. Jesus, from what I know about you, heard the stories. We don't know exactly what he believed or didn't believe about Jesus, but he knew this man was powerful. He had authority. He must be from God. And that authority can be used at his discretion. He says, I understand that authority thing. 
I got guys under mine. I tell them what to do. They do it. In the same way, I know that if you tell this guy, this, this servant to be healed, he will be healed. There is his faith. He had great faith. And as I said, this is what caused Jesus to be amazed. This is what Jesus marveled at. This is what he was astonished about. This man's great faith. He says, you know what? My own people, the Israelites, the ones who have the background in the Old Testament scriptures, they've seen God intervene in our history over and over and over again and God delivering and God doing this and God doing that. And I've come from God and, I, and, and Jesus has been doing all this stuff. And he says, and they don't even, they want a sign. They've seen so many signs, but they want another one. Give us another confirmation you're really from God. And he says, this guy just goes, you got authority? Use it. I believe you can. I believe you will. I told you that there's two places where it says that Jesus is amazed. The other one, I think I'm getting ahead of myself here. No, I'm not. The other one is in Mark chapter 7. When Jesus preaches in his hometown and says the people have a hard time believing who he is and what he's doing and how in the world could he become like this and, and they're rejecting him. And that's where it says that he was amazed at their unbelief. Two places where Jesus is amazed at his own people's unbelief and at the centurion's belief. You know, if Jesus was to be amazed with us, which way would it go? Because of our faith, because of our belief, because of our trust in him, or because of our unbelief? So the centurion recognized Jesus' power and authority, his own unworthiness, and he put his confident trust in God's care. And so before we zero on this faith for the last little bit of time we have left, I just want to ask you again, how do we do in these areas? As we look at his character, do we value people, especially those we see as being not of the same level we are or those who would be considered our enemies? Do we respect God? Do we, do we, are we generous? Are we humble? Do we have faith? So as we talk about this thing of faith, real quickly, faith is so important. If you have read the Bible, been around the Bible, been around Bible teaching, you know that faith is supremely important. Jesus talked and taught about faith a lot. The importance of having faith in God. And the importance that faith played in approaching God and receiving from God. Ephesians 2.8 says that we're saved by faith. 2 Corinthians 5.7 says that we are to live by faith. 2 Corinthians 1.24 says that it's by faith that we're able to stand firm. Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith, we can't please God. So faith is pretty important. So the fact that Jesus is amazed by the centurion's faith should tell us something. But sometimes we've made faith so much more complicated than it needs to be. And part of the reason why that may be true for some of us is that there's been so many different wacky teachings on faith out there over the years. You know, that faith is like some kind of a substance, you know, and if you've got enough, then you can get what you want. You can get what you need. Or that faith is some kind of power that can bind God. They would never put it in those words to do what you want him to do. Or that faith is something that you know, some people have a whole lot more than others. That may be true, but, you know, you just keep storing it up and building it up and then you can use it like some kind of magic substance or something. Again, they wouldn't use those words, but that's kind of the way the teachings come across. And the flip side of it being that, you know, if you ask God for something and you don't get it, then you must not have enough faith. 
or you've got sin in your life. And if you follow that kind of an idea to a conclusion, it's like, because God is our servant, and as long as we don't offend him too much, and we've got enough faith, he's got to do what we want him to do. And that is not what faith is. And God is not our servant. God is not a vending machine. God is the sovereign Lord of the universe, creator and king of kings and Lord of lords, and he can do whatever he wants, and we are so thankful. He loves us, and he wants what's best for us. So what is faith? Three words used in the New Testament for faith, and they all come from the same root. Faith, trust, and belief. Faith, trust, and belief. They're all the same thing. So what does it really mean to have faith? Just really quickly. Faith is trusting God. And we trust God because we believe in Him. We believe what His Word says about Him. We believe that He is God, and we believe all the things that His Word says about Him, and therefore we put our trust in Him. Okay? And if we put our trust in Him and we really believe Him, we're going to trust Him with everything. And if we really trust Him, we're going to do what He says. And if we really trust Him, we're going to accept whatever He allows in our lives. Now, there's the hard part. Because we say, well, if God's God and He really loves us, then why does He allow some of this stuff in my life? And that's a whole different topic for another time. We've talked and preached on that, and we will do it again. But if we really have faith, we say, God, I don't understand this. And this particular thing, I don't like it. In fact, I hate it. I'm not talking about people. I'm talking about circumstances. But you know what, God? I'm still going to trust you. Can I tell you, it takes more faith to trust God in the midst of difficulty when it seems like nothing's happening than than, than it does when God just immediately grants your request. That doesn't take much faith at all. And I'm not saying that that's why God may withhold something from us. We look to him and we come to him with what we need. We accept what he gives and how he responds to our request because we believe we have faith that he knows what is best and he will do what is best. And so we're going to trust him. We're going to trust him. I can tell you from my testimony, having known the Lord for 52 years now, praying all kinds of stuff for myself and for others. And there have been plenty of times that God said, yes, to what I asked him. And there's been plenty of times that God said no to what I asked him. And there have been some times that God said yes, but not right now. And there's been other times that God said, okay, I'll consider that. If you do this, then I'll do that. You see, those are all valid responses to our requests offered in faith, where the faith comes in is to offer it to God saying, God, I know you can do anything. And here's my situation. And and you can even say, based on what your word says, this is what I really think you would like to do in this situation. But you know what's best. So I'm going to trust you. So if you say yes, yay! Especially if you say it right now. If you say yes tomorrow, not as good, but that's okay. You say yes next week, still not as good, but that's okay. But Lord, even if you say no... I mean, this is what I want. This is what I need. This is what I think is best. But Lord, if you're in your wisdom, which is a little bit more than mine, can see in my life that it's better for you to say no right now, I'm still going to trust you. And that's why we talk about a God who loves us and wants what's best for us. And he can heal. And he will heal. 
when it's right, when it fits within his plan. But we have a hard time believing that sometimes healing is not part of God's plan because why wouldn't it be? But God knows. That's why we pray to a God who can do anything. That's why we pray to a God who heals and we ask him to heal, but we leave the results in his hands. We leave the results in his hands. I want to tell you something. The key to receiving from God is how you come to him. And this centurion is a great example. I'm wrapping it up with this. How did he come to Jesus? He didn't literally come. He sent emissaries. But if you want the key to receiving your best from God, your eternal best, not just your best for the moment, come to Jesus with confidence, knowing he loves you, cares about you, and wants to make a difference in your life. Come to him in reverence. Recognize he's the one that's in control. He's God. You're not. Come to him in humility, not demanding. Some people came to him and said, Jesus, if you're willing. He often said, I am willing. Come to him in humility. Come to him in faith. Now, I'm not trying to minimize faith. We should all be growing in our faith, growing in our trust. And come to him with trust in the sense of, God, here I am. Here's what I need. Here's what I want. And I'm asking you for it, but I'm trusting you. I'm leaving it in your hands. Whatever you see is best, whatever you think is best, whatever you know is best, I'm going to go forward with that. Now, let me just say this, that if there's a need in your life, especially we think of this in terms of healing of a physical situation, that doesn't mean that you need to come to God and say, God, please heal me. I'm trusting you. And if he doesn't do it, we just quit quit asking because there's a whole thing about perseverance in prayer. Because sometimes God is using our situation and it may involve a healing. It may be something else, a, a difficult situation that he's going to wait a little while because he wants us to persevere. Because in the persevering, our faith grows and we grow and, and all kinds of good things happen. So I would say don't ever stop praying about anything that you believe falls within the parameter of God's will, okay? I mean, you're not going to be praying about sin. You're going to, I mean, you know, the, is it okay for me to do it? But, you know, for healing, for financial, whatever, don't ever stop praying for something unless God specifically tells you to stop, which is basically what he told Paul one time. Okay, so you keep persevering and praying. You keep believing for the healing. You keep believing for that loved one. You keep believing for that relationship. You keep believing for your finances to turn around. You keep believing for all that. Do what you got to do too, but you keep praying and believing. Because that's part of the trust. God, you're in control. You're you're doing something here. I can't see it, but you're doing it, so I'm going to trust you. Can I tell you that Jesus will respond with compassion? Let's all stand together. I'm going to invite my wife, Pastor Jan, our elders to come. And I was informed before service that some of our men want to pray specifically for Norris. So, Norris, I'm going to ask you to come down here. And and those of in our men's group, you were wanting to pray for Norris because he's got his procedure this week. Go ahead and gather around him. Our worship team is going to lead us in a song. And when it's over, I'm going to come up and close in prayer. Or my wife will. One of us, too, will. But these are going to be praying for Norris. But my wife and I are here. And when they're done, they'll be here if you need a touch from God today. You need God to intervene in your finances. You need God to intervene in a relationship, whatever it is. In this story of the centurion, he says, Jesus, would you come heal my servant? Jesus, full of compassion, went to do it. And in his, in his humility, he said, you know, I'm not worthy, but you can, you can do it, Lord. Today, if you want to come and say, I know God can do it. I don't know what he wants to do, but I want to ask him. We're here to pray for you. Let's take time to do that right now before we close the service in a few moments. Amen. There are those that are still praying. We want them to do that. The musicians will continue to play.
But I just want to pray a blessing over all of us as we enter our world that God will help us to develop that character that he's working in us and help us to be men and women of faith and growing faith. Father God, we come to you right now. Thankful, Lord God, for your goodness. Thankful for your presence in this place. Thank you. Thankful for the way that you've spoken to us today. And God, show us how we need to apply that, Lord God. I pray that you would help us to continue to grow in godly character, Lord God. Not just the ones we looked at today in the centurion's life, Lord God, of generosity and and valuing people, treating them with love and respect and kindness and humility and all that. But all the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control. Lord, help us to become more like Jesus. Oh, Lord, we'll be so much better. Our families will be so much better. Our marriage will be so much better. Our workplace will be so much better. We'll be a better witness and testimony to the world. Help us to continue to grow, Lord Jesus. And Father, help our faith to grow. Help us to truly trust you, Lord God. We doubt sometimes because we can't understand why you're doing what you're doing, why you're allowing what you're allowing. God, help us to just trust you and to cling to you in faith. Father, I pray as we leave this place today that we would go as your ambassadors, your representatives to our world. I pray that people would see our character and it's not perfect yet, but it's growing. We're changing. When we mess up, we fess up, Lord God. And and Lord, may people see Jesus in us. Use us to share Jesus with people around us. Help us to make a difference in our world. And Lord, help us to walk in victory. God, we give you the glory, the honor, and the praise. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord. We hope you've enjoyed listening to today's message or Bible study. For more information, please contact us at area code 352-347-3001 or visit us online. If you are interested in supporting this ministry, go to our website and click on the online giving tab. Our website address is www.marionoaksag.org. 